0: I'd like you to open up your Bibles to the Book of Isaiah, about two thirds of the way through the Old Testament. Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 52. Isaiah 52, and our text this morning is going to be Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely; he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? For the transgressors. May God add his blessing to the reading of his words. A powerful passage, isn't it? I have another question for you this week. Who is the Bible written about? Who is the Bible written about? Just ponder that for a second. Because a lot of people read the Bible and think it's about them. And it's easy to do. We all have a tendency to insert ourselves into the narrative don't we? I think, I think that's what selfies are all about. You know, I I just ran up and down the length and breadth of Israel and everybody's taking selfies. You know, there's a temple in the background and there's me in the middle of it. I think that selfie is the ultimate form of, of expression of inserting ourselves into the narrative of those things going around us. I think we do the same thing with the Bible. We do a selfie with the Bible, making a verse or a passage about ourselves. Now, it's kind of okay, but I think we need to be real careful with that because I think it can lead to an error in how we understand and apply Scripture. So, who is the Bible written about? And, and even more so, why is it important for us to know who the Bible is written about? And I think we're going to find some answers in Isaiah and, and how this passage rolls out. The book of Isaiah was written sometime around 740 B.C. Uh, world situation was, the Assyrians... Are an, uh, a rising superpower. The kingdom of Israel has been divided. Ten tribes of the north call themselves Israel. Two tribes to the south near Jerusalem call themselves Judah. Israel's been taken captive by Assyria. Judah's been spared. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet sent to Judah to warn them that even though they've been spared there's trouble coming down the road. They need to be wary. They need to be careful. The problem is People had a hard time accepting all this because, all in all, these were prosperous times in Judah. Uh, Just prior to the invasion, they were prosperous times in Israel as well. But they were prosperous because both Israel and Judah had aligned themselves with other nations. Now. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to trade with other nations. But by Isaiah's time, both kingdoms had begun to rely upon the other nations rather than relying upon God, their Father, Protector, and Provider. So Israel actually turned their back on God, forsaking him, worshiping pagan gods, worshiping idols. They had temples to Baal and ashrams set up all over the place and You can go to the village of Dan and see some of them still. And now they've been invaded by Assyria, carried away, taken off to another land, and their land occupied by Gentiles. That would be an offense to the Jews. Isaiah tells us that the Assyrians are actually tools in the hands of God, who's using them for his glory to refine his people. We saw that in the book of Habakkuk when we went through it, it was... The Chaldeans were raised up so that God could use them to refine his people, to draw them closer to him. It was hard for some of us to process, but it's right there in the scripture. So Isaiah is a prophetic book, one that clearly demonstrates God's sovereign rule over all the nations in the world, over all of the history of the world, and, and perhaps more so in Isaiah than many other books in the Bible, we see this. And it comes at a crucial time in Judah's history, It's meant to give a warning against ungodly behavior, to tell them that they're on a bad path, but it's also meant to give a hope, a hope that the story of this tragically divided nation is headed somewhere and has a purpose. There is an end to the story, an end that not only glorifies God, but will ultimately redeem and rescue the two nations, bringing them together once again in unity in the presence of the Father. So the book can be divided up in a number of ways. You pick up four or five different commentaries. You'll, five, you'll see four or five different ways to break up Isaiah. Here's the way I've chosen to break it up. Chapters 1 through 39 describe the king. Chapters 40 through uh, 55 describe the servant. And chapters 56 through 66 de- uh, describe the conqueror. Now, the thing about this is that all three of these individuals, as Isaiah rolls out, are the same individual. They're the same person. And, and that's what made Isaiah hard for the Hebrews to digest. Uh, they could see a king. Yes, they had a king. Uh, sometimes a king becomes a servant. Sometimes a nation is defeated and their king is carried away. More often than not, the king's executed. But sometimes he's carried away to serve other kings. And uh, But, but they, what they had no way of processing was a servant becoming a conqueror. That just didn't happen. So even the layout of the book was a little bit of a challenge to them. So, This is a progression. The king becomes a servant who becomes the conqueror. So the confusion, as we'll see, comes from inappropriately reading these scriptures and thinking they're about the reader and not about the author. Now, to be sure, we're in there. We're in the Bible. We can be assured that we are a major part of the Bible. but. We need to understand our role in reading the Bible because our primary role in reading the Bible is as recipients of a spectacular blessing, one that rolls freely and with tremendous grace out of the author of the Bible. And that being said, we are not the subject and focus of the Bible, but, but we'll get to that in a little bit. For now, I want to take a look at this one short passage that seems to set the tone and, and one of the many themes for Isaiah. Um, for the entire book, and we find that in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. You don't have to turn there, listen carefully. Isaiah 6, 9, and he, God said, Go and say to this, people, to Isaiah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. This is being said to Judah, who's in the middle of prosperous times. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Talk about total desolation. So in this passage, we see these themes rise up early in Isaiah, As you read the rest of Isaiah, you see it happen. Blindness is there, deafness, judgment, dullness of heart, captivity. They all start right here in chapter 6. It's into this environment that God will bring hope, not because of the people, we need to understand that, not because of the people, but in spite of them, a hope that exemplifies grace and unending mercy, two themes that, in spite of popular opinion, are thematic for the entire Old Testament. You know, a lot of people believe that the Old Testament is the book of the law, the book of the angry God, the book of the mean God, But if you read the book from from stem to stern, if you start at the beginning and read it to the end, you find out it's not a book about an angry God at all. As a matter of fact, it is a book about an, an extremely gracious God. He keeps on telling his people, do this, do this, do that, and they keep on doing exactly the opposite. Yet God exhibits his grace upon them. He's constantly delivering them. They indeed are good people of God because they are constantly repenting once they realize their sin, but then they backslide again. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the time of the Maccabees and that sort of thing, they've backslidden again, and God is still gracious enough to send the Savior to them, to send the Messiah to them. The Messiah comes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The Old Testament is a story of grace. Even the law, even the law is a gift of grace. What does Paul say about the law? The law is there to reveal what? Our sin. Our sin. Without the law... We don't understand our sin. Without understanding our sin, we don't know that we need to repent. Without repenting, there's no salvation. The law leads to our salvation. The entire book is a book of grace. The Old Testament is a clear demonstration of that. Nowhere is that grace more evident than in our passage today, which is commonly known as the suffering servant passage. And here's what I want to show you as we answer our question for this morning, who is the Bible about? There are five qualities of the servant we're going to see in answering that, that question. So uh, here the five qualities are. The servant is promised. The servant, will be, the servant will be rejected. The servant will be oppressed by God. The servant will, will be oppressed by the world. And the servant will be exalted. Our sermon today is called The Suffering Servant, taken right from that heading over the passage. We talked about those headings last week They're, they're not inspired, uh, but they are good in helping guide us through a passage. So let's take a look at our first quality, the servant promised. We see the promise in 52, 13, and 15. So, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which he has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. The servant is clearly the subject of the passage, but he's also the source of some confusion I spoke about. And the question becomes who's the servant. Now, to find out who the servant is, we need to back up in Isaiah a little bit. So, uh, the, first, uh, the first mention of the servant shows him to be a metaphor for Israel, and here's where the problem is right here. Israel, uh, the pre-divided nation, uh, is the servant. We can see that in a number of verses. I'm just going to share a few of them with you. Isaiah 41.8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, Whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So offspring is collective. He's talking about Israel as a nation. Uh, Isaiah 44, 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. There are about a dozen more, maybe more than that. And this is exactly where The problem is because when the Jews listened to Isaiah and and read his writings, they believed that all of the servant passages were about them. They either misinterpret or entirely miss a very subtle shift in the book that occurs in chapter 49, where we see this servant actually becomes embodied in a person, No longer a metaphor, the servant becomes a living person. We're not gonna go through the whole chapter, but listen to just a few verses here. 49, one and two. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hid me away. The servant has a name. The servant has a mother. The name was given before he was born. And his mouth is like a sharp sword. Now, as we read on, and particularly we get into the New Testament, even the book of Revelation, we find out this is a description of Christ. Isaiah 49, 3. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This man has now become Israel the servant. There's more. Listen to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 49 of Isaiah. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, Now we're talking about the servant, Jacob, and Israel as separate entities. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. There is no nation, there is no group of people, no race that fits these descriptions however they do describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Description of the Messiah given 700 years prior to his birth in Bethlehem. So by the time we get to Isaiah 52, it should be clear that the servant is the promised Messiah. But the promise comes with a heavy burden, and again, here's a source of confusion. Isaiah says that the Messiah will act wisely, but will be lifted up. Now, this lifted up is not lifted up in a good way. This is lifted up in the style of crucifixion but he will be lifted up and exalted. And exalted means exactly what you think it means, praised. This is a curious combination of phrases here. Those who see him are going to be astonished at his humiliation, but they're going to be equally astonished at his exaltation as well. They're not going to be able to figure this out. To make things even more confusing, his appearance is marred. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be tortured to the point of horrible disfigurement. And in his torture, he will sprinkle many nations. Now Isaiah reverts to the language of ritual here. And as, as the Jews would hear this, they would think of the priest sprinkling blood on the altar as a sacrifice for their sins. He describes how the Messiah is going to be treated. The impact he's going to have on those he encounters and this is a promise. It's a promise about the coming Messiah. The the Jews don't fully comprehend all this yet, so we need to cut them a little bit of slack, and we need to cut them a little bit of slack because it's an odd promise. It's hard to decipher, and the Jews have had odd promises before. They've heard harsh prophecies. They've heard prophecies about uh, their suffering, and frequently they talked about their suffering, and are so convinced that this is about them as a nation that they misinterpret this particular passage here in these chapters for 700 years. I actually stopped to think about it. Some of them misinterpret it a lot longer than that, thinking it's about them instead of the Lord, which is exactly one of the reasons that they miss it when the Messiah arrives and fulfills every one of the promises we see in the passage. They miss it. Not only fulfills it, but he fulfills the promises in amazingly accurate detail. Huh. Let's move on to our next quality. Servant is rejected. The servant will be rejected. And this is in 15, 1 through 3. Who has believed that he has heard from us and Notice that Isaiah starts using us and we in these verses. Most believe he's talking about himself and Israel. It's a collective we. The people, the Messiah is sent to, the Jews. They they haven't believed what they've heard yet. And maybe if you squint and look a little cross-eyed at the verses and choose to ignore everything that comes after verse 3. You may be able to convince yourself that Isaiah is talking about other nations. I mean, after all, that's kind of a reasonable assumption. Israel would never not believe. They certainly would not despise and reject their Messiah. Their Messiah would not be a sorrowful man. These verses certainly can't describe the Messiah. Israel must be talking, Isaiah must be talking about unbelievers. Isaiah must be talking about Gentiles. Furthermore, this man is gonna be despised. Now, to the Jew, that has a different connotation than it does to us. To us, there's an emotional involvement here. To the Jews, it means more like they were going to ignore him, that he was not worthy of any attention. So, they think that the passage is saying that the one who will deliver nations will be met with shock, astonishment, dislike, Total dismissal and avoidance. And the way they process that is given the history of the Jews and all the persecution that fell on them, they fit the pattern to a T. And you know what? They probably do. It sounds like them. And to be honest, that sort of heart attitude fits a certain perspective that lends itself quite well to being a martyr. There's something most noble about being the people of God, understanding the truth and knowing that you're right and nobody else is. So again, we don't want to be too hard on them because I think in the church universal today, some of the same attitude exists in the modern church today. You'll hear it in a self-righteous denunciation of sinners when each one of us has sins of our own that we need to repent of. Somebody say amen. Many would rather harp on the trending sin of the moment that we're told is going to ruin the church or ruin the world. and uh, So we would like to concentrate on that rather than deal with our own sin. A lot of people know the Scripture uh, that they can quote in order to condemn that particular spin, some, some, some evil behavior, some abominable attitude, but can't seem to apply the Scriptures to their own hearts. To many Christians, it's inconceivable that God would want to refine them. He's here to refine everybody else. See, this is the struggle of the Jews in Isaiah's time. To them, it was, it was inconceivable that they would ignore uh, and reject the very Messiah that they've been waiting so long for. To them, it was inconceivable that God would be coming to clean them up instead of everybody else. So they choose to interpret the scriptures in a way that accommodates their preconceptions about who God is and who the Messiah is. Yet the promise that he will be rejected by his own people just remains hanging there in the air. And it's hard to deal with. Our next quality is perhaps the most surprising quality of all of this servant. He's oppressed by God. And we read that in verses 4 through 6. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned. Every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. According to Hebrew tradition, people that are stricken uh, are stricken for having done something wrong. If you do good, God will bless you. If you do bad, you're in trouble. You get punished. To the Jews, this would mean that the servant would be punished, the description we see here, for sinning. Now, this is kind of where that idea of Israel as a nation being the servant begins to fray at the edges a little bit, starts to unravel. Trying to hold on to the viewpoint gets complicated real quick and more difficult as we progress through the passage because Isaiah says that they, Israel, will consider the servant to be smitten and afflicted because he will bear the punishment, not for his own sins, Catch us, but for theirs. Not for his sins, but for theirs. He's going to take their griefs and their sorrows. He'll be pierced for their transgressions, pierced for their offenses towards God. So by now, it's getting increasingly clear that uh, this is about the Messiah, but it's hard for the Jews to receive because of how they perceive the Messiah. And the Jews would hear this this way, the promise this way. The Messiah would be struck down by God for the sins of his chosen people, for the sins of his children. That just doesn't compute for them. That confuses them. Look look, look at everything Isaiah says that the servant's going to go through. He will be despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, beaten down, bruised. This is absolutely tragic. Uh, It's horrible and almost unthinkable. But even as we ponder all of the suffering that we're talking about right here, look, look what becomes of it. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. All that he goes through brings us peace. And by his wounds, we're healed. He goes through this so that God's people can what? Have peace and be healed. Now, we've got to be careful with this verse, frequently taken out of context and used to say that nobody should be sick, that we should always be healed of our sicknesses. There's nothing in this passage that speaks of physical ailments. This passage is about judgment. It's about the consequences for sin speaks of eternal maladies. Taken in the context of this passage, healing means to be cured of the transgressions and iniquities of God's children. It is the ultimate healing. It is the ultimate deliverance. It is the ultimate perfection and being moved into God's presence, ultimately healed of all disease, including the most important one, sin. They're cured from suffering the consequences of their sin. And what's described in, in this promise of oppression by God is that the servant, listen, the servant will take the punishment the people have earned. Okay, did you hear that? The servant will take their place. Why? Because all have sinned. All we, like sheep, have gone astray every run. Rather than punish those who sinned, the Lord has laid upon him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Next quality, verses 7 through 9, servant's going to be oppressed by the world. Servant will be oppressed by God, will be oppressed by the world. And if, if you look closely at these verses, here's what you're going to see. The servant is going to be totally isolated from everything. He will be, he will suffer Utterly alone, by himself. He goes through his affliction even though he's by himself, even though he's taking the weight of the sin of the world upon him. He goes through his affliction without objection. There is no complaining. There is no cry for justice. There is no cry for fairness. There is just total submission to the punishment that is meant for those he came to deliver. And for his sacrifice, for everything that he does, He's going to be looked down upon. Lumped with evildoers and and with those who are held in high contempt. An innocent, perfect man offered up in sacrifice in place of a sinful, desperately evil people. That's pretty dismal, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, this, this is just not a happy story. You can feel the burden of it even as we walk through the passage. No matter who you believe the servant to be, it just, it's weighty. There's a whole bunch of trouble in for the servant. None of it makes sense until you see and understand the last quality of the servant. And that is that he will be exalted. There, Verse 10 and 11, take a look at this. Yet it... Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God has put the servant to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilt, when the when the servant's soul makes an offering for guilt, God shall see his offspring, God shall prolong his days, I'm paraphrasing. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the servant's hand. We've got good news happening here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of the servant's soul, God will see and God will be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Make no mistake, this isn't evil run rampant. The world isn't spinning out of control. God's not sitting in heaven going, I wish this hadn't happened. I didn't know they were going to rise up against my servant. God is in control. This is not a quandary. All of these promises, the promised servant, his rejection, his oppression by God, his oppression by the world, the suffering, the torture, the payment for sins, all this happens, listen, by the will of God. We have to deal with that. We don't want to think of God oppressing his servant. We don't want to think of a God who will crush his servant. I don't even have to get into the Hebrew and crush. You know what it means. We don't want to think of a God who wanted to afflict the servant. Listen, God made the servant's deepest inner grief an offering for guilt. In the Septuagint, the Greek says an offering for sin. And we're reminded of this substitutionary nature of the oppression of the servant to stand in our place. He's taken all of this on himself for the sins of the people of the father so that the father will once again see his offspring so that the father will once again be restored to a relationship with his children. Do you see what's happening here? So that they will be in his presence. Over and above all that, none of this means the end of the servant. He's not going to die and fade away. God will prolong his days in spite of what the suffering he, he, he goes through produces. And look at this. The will of the Lord will prosper in the servant's hand. The servant will become the one who executes and fulfills the sovereign plan of the Lord. Far from being some kind of victim of his circumstances, he's a strong arm of God, delivering his people in a manner that only God can deliver his people. God will see, God will see the sacrifice of His servant, and He will be satisfied. You know what Scripture says will be satisfied in God when He sees the sacrifice of His servant? His wrath. He pours out his wrath on a servant so that those who believe in him don't have to be subject to it. It's incredible. It's amazing. Far from being a victim, he's a strong arm of the Lord. He bears. He bears our iniquities. And many shall be accounted righteousness because of the work he does. See the beauty there? Do you see through the suffering of his servant that God restores his people to himself? The end result of this is absolutely incredible. Found in verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you hear that? Jesus, who was sent down here, oppressed, afflicted, tortured, bled out, died for our sins, rose up into heaven, sits on the right hand of God. What's he doing there? He's praying for you and me. Praying for the ones that caused his suffering. What is a life lesson in that, isn't there? So those are five qualities of the suffering servant. He's promised, He'll be rejected, be oppressed by God, be oppressed by the world. then he'll be exalted, lifted up. It's going to be another 700 years after Isaiah' written. Before we find out that the servant is not Israel, the nation, we find out for sure. You see all the promises fulfilled in this passage, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He will be despised and rejected by his own people. He will be oppressed and alone. And even though he's despised and rejected, oppressed and alone, he still walks up that hill to Calvary and allows himself to be nailed to the cross. And surrenders his life to pay for your sin and my sin. He takes our place on that cross. The Jews thought the scripture was about them. But the scriptures are about God incarnate, God made the flesh coming down to earth to rescue and redeem his chosen people. Chosen certainly not because they're wise, certainly not because they are holy or sinless, and certainly not because they're even good people because they don't even cut the grade on that, but because God called them his own. He sent his son. Truth be told, Jews are no different than you and I. We're no better than they are. The only possible difference between us and and them is whether or not we believed in the one who died in our place. You know, some of them did. Some of them got it right. Some of us do. But I got to tell you something. If you came in here this morning, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, If you're one of those that didn't, you have no way of paying for your sins other than paying for them yourself. You have no substitute to stand in your place and take the full wrath of God. There's only two ways, either with Christ or on your own. Brothers and sisters, the only hope any of us has is in Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his children, having paid the price for bringing them into his presence. Now we should, in particular in a day like today, we should find comfort in that. That should give our lives meaning and purpose. In a world where anyone can walk into a crowded club or a busy airport and do horrific damage, wantonly taking innocent lives, it's easy for us to succumb to the fear of the unknown. We don't know what's gonna happen when we walk outside that door. Anything could happen. You know, we got all these lone wolf guys running around that have some vague motivation about what they're doing. Who do we, how do we know somebody's not going to pull a gun out and just start shooting anywhere just because they feel like it? And, and the media and the world would have us quake in fear over that. On top of that, we're, we're facing a presidential campaign that has got to be the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. You know, we're supposed to vote for one of these people. I'm watching the campaign just like you are. I want to vote my conscience. All I see is two heads of two parties calling each other names like school children. Yet we're desperate to put our hope in one of them. There's no hope in them. They can't save us. They can't fix this country. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Suffering servant. Listen to Isaiah this morning. Listen to Isaiah because the world can be a terrifying and confusing place. Listen to Isaiah because the suffering servant now sits exalted on the right hand of God. And know this, beloved. If you call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he sits on the right hand of God and he has you in his hand. And He has made a promise to you that He will never let you go. That nothing will ever snatch you out of His hand. He's made a promise to you that nothing will ever separate you from Him and the Father's love. From you and the Father's love. Because we're all one. He's in us, we're in Him. He's one with the Father. Do you understand that? That as he ascended to heaven, we were one with him, those of us who call him Lord and Savior, and because he sits in heaven and we're one with him, our place in heaven is guaranteed. When he ascended into heaven, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. That's a promise just as good as the five promises that we see in Isaiah and will be fulfilled in that much completion. Amen. So, We cannot be separated from him. Meanwhile, as we're waiting for that time that he comes back to get us, our lives should become living testimonies for the one who paid the price for us and who guarantees us that we will have eternal life in the presence of God. We should put the gospel and our God on display in everything that we do and say so that the world will know that the suffering servant suffered for them as well. Who's the Bible about? It's about God. It's about God. It's about his plan for redemption for his children. Why is it important that we know this? Because that story is so much bigger than my story. So much bigger than you or me. It's about his glory. It's about his majesty. It's about his grace, it's about his love, it's about his gospel, and it's about the hope that he brings to the world. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are supposed to be messengers of that hope. By his grace, he demonstrates to the world his love, grace, and mercy through us. Amen? I can't think of a better time to take communion.